welcome to uh, I'm not sure if I'll be here at the at the under the offices of the Institute of the Americas. Think it's so. not be here, so yeah. <laughs> In any case, kind of fellow Latin Americanists. Um, my name is uh, Marcelo Lopez Levy, and I'm uh, an Argentinian sociologist. Um, I've written a couple of books on uh, some of the mobilizations that happened after 2001, after the financial crash then in Argentina, um, and uh, a bit about, uh, and another book on the Kirchner years um, and the, the, what that meant in terms of demobilization, in fact, of quite a lot of um, different political and social movements. Um, so I'm really interested to hear, you know, what Dan's made of the longer view and the comparative view uh, with other cases. Um, I just want to start with a little bit of housekeeping. Um, there, there's drinks um, after the, the, the official talking bit, um, so please st stay around for some crisps and some um, wine, uh, wine reception. We aim to finish uh, for about eight-ish. Um, and um, but we'll see how we go because we're starting a little bit late, so it might run a bit over. Um, and there will be a bookstore, but I'm not sure if it's quite happened yeah, yet. Yeah, Charlie's there? running the bookstore. Oh, there, right. Oh, hello. Okay, so we do have a bookstore, <laughs> so um, that's where you can um, have a look at the actual um, book. So I think with that, um, I will kick off by introducing Dan, although I'm sure most of you here. Know, um, know him and his work, um, but Dan's a senior lecturer at Middlesex University um, and where he did his PhD and his thesis focused on middle class resistance to pulverization in Argentina during the 2001 crisis. Um, he's the chair of the Argentina Research Network and co-editor of two other books, um, which I'm sure he'll tell you more about, Argentina since the 2001 crisis, recovering and reclaiming the future. Recovering the past, comma. recovering the past, reclaiming the future. Sorry, did I? There. I forgot the name of my own book. Sorry. Um, and he researches comparative citizen responses to financial crisis in Europe and Latin America. Um, welcome. So I'll hand over to Dan. Thanks, Marcy. So thanks to everyone for coming today. Um, thanks also to the UCL Institute of the Americas, and especially to Daisy Voke, who's helped to organize the event today. Um, it's great to be back at my alma mater. Uh, I did graduate from UCL a fair few years ago, so it's good to be back. Um, I also wanted to thank my panelists um, for coming and participating today. First of all, to Sam Halverson, who's a good friend, a fellow co-academic activist, and we share a kind of passion for Argentina um, for some years. Uh, to um, Isabel Guites Sanchez, <laughs> uh, who I met, uh, I think, two years ago at a panel in Kingston that we both um, spoke on, um, uh, on poverty, inequality, and the resistance at the festival there. And ever since, I've been really keen, I've been following your work, and I'm, I'm really glad that you're here today to talk about Spain and Greece and your own uh, research. And then to Marcy, who I've known for over a decade, um, and actually it was Marcelo Lopez-Levy who uh, one of her books, um, We Are Millions, actually was one of the books that inspired me and motivated me to look into Argentina and to the protests and the uprisings there from 2001. So I actually owe Marcy um, quite a lot. So the book I'm going to talk to you about today, this book that you've got the leaflet there in front of you for, 
is a book that the empirics actually begin around about 2003, but um, my passion for Argentina actually began sometime before that. <laughs> yeah, boo hiss and all that. Um, <laughs> this, it dates back, I want you to imagine a five-year-old Dan um, who was watching his first ever football match with his dad, that's in the audience there, and it was the first time that I heard the word Argentina. Um, we know what happened. Um, England lost to the hand of God and to one Diego Armando Maradona. And I remember his dad put me to bed that night. Uh, he said, I said to him, Dad, I want to kill Diego Maradona. <laughs> and then he said, don't be so harsh. And then I said, Dad, okay, I want to kill all Argentinians. <laughs> so it's funny how life turns out because since then, since Diego broke my heart, Argentina has become a real passion for me. Um, I have written three books on Argentina since then. Um, I've researched the country extensively. Come and sit down, folks. There's some front. seats over here. Um, some 30 years later. <laughs> so some 30 years later, it's actually become a real passion of mine. Um, I've researched extensively in the country. Um, so the three books there that you can see I'm standing in front of. Um, and um, I've gained a wife from Argentina as well over there, Tammy. So it's, it is funny how life turns out. I'm just thinking, Isabel, can we swap round? Then I won't be in front of the screen. Thank you. Thanks. So, what I'm going to talk to you about over the next half an hour or so is this book. I'm going to explain a bit about the idea behind it, where it came from, and also some of the key uh, concepts and things. <coughs> so Argentina, in 2001, uh, for those of you who don't know, experienced one of the worst crises in uh, modern history, a political and economic crisis that was so severe that it threw 7 million people into poverty overnight. Um, poverty levels reached 54%. The economy went through the floor, growth fell by 20% in a year, um, $100 billion of debt is what Argentina had to default on, which at the time was the largest debt default in history. This had been caused by a series of problems that led up to the crisis, including a whole decade of neoliberal policies in the 90s, together with what's called the convertibility model, which is when the dollar was tied to the peso one-to-one, -one, and Argentina ran up a series of budget deficits over a long period. And um, through this terrible crisis, what happened was after I graduated from UCL, I went to volunteer in Argentina to help the country to, to reconstruct itself. Um, I worked in the Vichetén de Una, which those of you from, well, from Argentina know, one of the largest shanty towns uh, in, in uh, Buenos Aires. But I also worked with the impoverished middle class, what in the academic literature we call the New Urban Poor. And it was actually, although both sets of experiences were tremendously enriching, tremendously, they were beautiful uh, experiences, it was actually that, um, the connections that I made with the kind of fallen middle class, if you like, were more poignant, perhaps because I could relate to them more at a personal level. And these are kind of highly educated, often home-earning, affluent, consumer-driven citizens. They lost everything overnight, and that 
the idea of losing everything overnight really struck with me um, for quite some time. So that's um, I returned to the UK after my volunteer period, which was about 2004, inspired by the resilience of the Argentinian people, inspired by how they came together with different sections of society to overcome adversity. But one question haunted me, and the question that haunted me is this. How would we cope in Britain, in Europe, in North America with such catastrophic loss? This seemed like a strange question to be asking myself in 2004. Europe is booming, at least in terms of economic growth, the same in North America. Um, but the idea of the double blow as well also was something that I got really interested in. The double blow of impoverishment, corporatization, and proletarianization. What do I mean by that? First, if you can imagine, you've never been unemployed in your life, the disorientation that one feels from losing their job, from having all of their life savings wiped out, with no what Schultz calls stock of knowledge in their family histories of how to deal with sudden descent. Um, the Argentinians had experienced three decades of upward social mobility from, since the, when their European um, immigrants entered into Argentina approximately a, a century before. But then there's also the psychological blow. Imagine being the charity givers for so long and then having to become the charity receivers. You can see that in the image there. It was something that Argentinian people, as I'm sure you can imagine, found really, really difficult to deal with. So I was also concerned um, about how they were dealing with the crisis in terms of trying to regain their livelihoods. Because I've been doing quite a lot of work um, in terms of um, the French sociologist Pierre Bordeaux, his theories um, in the last two or three years. And a lot of them remained in poverty some 20 years later because they found, because of the shame associated with sudden impoverishment and descent from the middle class, it became much more difficult for them to mobilise their social, human and cultural factors, um, which I'm currently writing a paper on. So what happened next? I came back in the UK. I, was, I worked for a series of NGOs for a number of years. I did a master's at... Um, <coughs> Can I say Isla? The other place down the road. Probably not supposed to mention, but I've done it. I did my dissertation there with um, Professor Maxine Molyneux, who is a professor here, she was director here for some time, on new poor coping strategies post-crisis um, and how they differ from those of the structural poor. But the thing is, although this, the questions of resilience and how the middle class coped per se was interesting. Um, what actually, the more I spoke to people, the more I studied the crisis, the more I uh, looked into it, the more I realised that what fascinated me even more was actually between this period of 2001 and 2003 in Argentina, the enormous popular uprisings that occurred of highly, the highly educated, um, homeowning, uh, middle class, coming together in solidarity with the poor from the shanty towns, with work, other workers, with um, people from across society, and how they came together, united on the streets, to reject what had happened to them, to say, que se vayan todos, we want to get rid of the whole lot of them, the political and the economic establishment, and we want to try to rebuild grassroots, from the grassroots, reorganise society 
from below. We want to reject not only the neoliberal economic system that has caused our impoverishment, but also the corrupt political system um, that was completely unresponsive to citizen needs since the end of the dictatorship in 1983. And it was this bourgeoning solidarity that petrified the ruling elites at the time. Um, Argentina's urban centres became incubators for radical experiments in participating, participatory democracy. As citizens resisted what happened to them and came together to, um, to, to say no. Um, interestingly, a lot of the symbols, a lot of the organisational strategies, a lot of the tactics were, that came out of Argentina at the time, talking about horizontal decision-making, saying, no, we don't need any leaders. We're going to do this for ourselves. The open assembly that anyone could come to and participate in. These were the use of the saucepan as a protest symbol. A lot of these tactics and strategies and symbols were then adopted in later years um, by the European and North American social movements when they said no to um, austerity and um, the representative crisis as well. But the rebellious spirit of those days was marked by a discourse of autonomy. That the grassroots revolution should happen without interference from political parties, without interference from governments, without interference from trade unions. Millions of normal Argentinians who had never been in a protest before, who had never been political activists, I presume. Um, sorry, that's a special mention that I said earlier. Yeah. <laughs> the train strike. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was it was those radical movements, um, the Picatera roadblocks, the pots and pans protests, the scratches outside the banks by savers who had lost all their life savings, the uh, neighbourhood assemblies of people organising in their barrios, in their neighbourhoods, to work out, not only to talk through the political problems of the day, but also, also to organise how local resources should be um, distributed from uh, the rich to the poor and needy. The worker-run enterprises, the worker-recovered companies, where workers uh, whose businesses and offices and hospitals and um, uh, and factories closed down, went in, took over the companies and ran them for themselves. The bargain clubs that millions of Argentinians took part in, in the absence of money, which was um, because of the default, was very difficult to come by. And so, at this time, um, it wasn't just this period of mobilisation and hope which delighted me, but instead, how the idea, the, what the, a lot of the Argentinians said at the time, those participating in the movements, said, um, we are not going to delegate responsibility to other people who have let us down in the past, to our politicians, to the economists, to the bankers, to get us out of this crisis. We're actually in a, a wonderful example of pre-configurative politics. We are going to be the change that we want to see. We are going to actively reorganise society ourselves through self-organisation um, and this is what they did through participating and running the movements that I just mentioned. So it was around this time that I began to be influenced by the work of um, a lot of the open Marxists such as 
John Holloway and, and Sam at one time ran a, a book circle on Holloway's work that I participated in, for example. And at Dinnerstein, Raoul Zavecchi, um, and to some extent the autonomous such as Mark, uh, uh, Negri Hart as well. And it was these very same kinds of thought that actually influenced the movements in Argentina at that time, the Zapatistas as well in Mexico um, um, at, at the time as well. But I wanted to understand as well why such movements don't just occur in the first place, but why do they dissipate? After that initial moment of imagining beyond capitalism, uh, why the cross-class solidarity that is essential for any kind of social transformation, in particular any kind of progressive social transformation, why did that break down? Especially from the view of the middle class in Argentina, but also in other places, um, who had the potential to replace the established order if only the multi-sectoral alliances and the radicalism had endured beyond um, 2002. So this uh, led me to depart somewhat from the Marxists and to start to explore much more deeply the works of uh, Antonio Gramsci, in particular his writings on hegemony, ideology and false consciousness. Eventually this became the theoretical framework of the book and I focused uh, on the idea of how and why the middle class in Argentina changed its subjectivities, changed the way that they saw themselves vis-à-vis -vis other social sectors um, and their ideological positions. And, and if there's one phrase that summarises the main issue that I was seeking to explore um, through my research, it's this. Um, and it's actually, it's not my own phrase, um, I actually took, I've taken it from uh, the Argentinian philosopher uh, José Pablo Fainé, uh, who some of you may know, on his television show, Philosophia um, Quiahora, he asked the following question. Shh! That's my son there, sorry, I'm going to have to turn No heckler, It's my worst heckler, yeah. Um, the middle class faces an extremely harsh existential reality because it doesn't want to be what it is, middle class. It wants to be something that it never will be. Upper class. But it's fearful of becoming something that it isn't currently but could become lower class. Under these circumstances, what does it do? When the right wing throws the middle class into poverty, the middle class unites with the poor and adopts the slogans of the slogan Piqueteros, Casero Lazos, Pop Bangers, our struggle is the same. This is the case in Argentina in 2001. Populist governments come to power. And the middle class is content until it starts to recover its purchasing power. At this point, it gets tired of the populist governments uh, and it unites with the upper class, which it believes it can become part of. Then, the upper class, once in power, once again throws the middle class back into poverty. And uh, once again, they join the, the poor in the call to, um, to overthrow uh, the current regime and bring in populist government. But, to get out of this, this kind of vicious circle, the middle class needs to ask itself once and for all, regardless of whether you're in Argentina or anywhere else, um, who are we? What are our interests? Whose side are we on? I would say that its destiny lies much closer with the poor class than it believes, because whenever the upper class govern, they always act in their own interests. And they always will send the middle class back into poverty if they need. Mm -hmm. 
So, I come to my PhD, we're in about 2008 now, and um, in my PhD proposal, which I did at Middlesex University, which is where I'm a senior lecturer at the moment, the quantitative element of the book is based upon the, um, the PhD. It was accepted in August 2008. And I imagined in that thesis a Europe and a North America in which um, there would be a mass proletarianisation of the middle class on the scale of Argentina. <coughs> I also said that there would be a massive financial crisis that would sweep across the global north. Now, at this time, the subprime uh, housing market crash had begun, but it hadn't yet become a financial crisis. There were very few economists at the time predicting that there would be a financial crisis. Uh, Nero Rubini and um, others were. But barely any of them predicted that there would be uprisings across Europe, so I'm kind of blowing my trumpet a bit here, but it's in my thesis and I've got it back in my to see it. But what I said was, the assumption was, there were two, in the book there were two what I call um, myths of domination. The first one was that there would never be, that we were kind of on this upward um, economic current, uh, the end of the cycle of boom and bust and that kind of thing. And the second myth of domination was that if there was ever to be a financial global crisis, that the middle class would remain docile, that they wouldn't respond, that they'd act as purely economic, rational agents looking after their own through individual coping strategies. But those people were obviously mistaken. You know, you only have to look at social movement theory to understand that when people are suffering and going through a crisis, they recognise shared grievances with other people who are going through the same issue as them. They uh, kind of motivated by justice frames, become angry, um, and often gain the belief that they can actually come together, establish political demands with other people, and um, act collectively in the political realm as well. And that is certainly what happened um, across Europe, across uh, North America, and across the Middle East. So two weeks later, Lehman Brothers collapsed, two weeks after I my thesis in, um, sparking the global financial crisis and a wave of debt-induced um, crises and radical, autonomous-inspired protests. These were often led by the middle class, and they occurred amidst similar crises of political representation. We had the, the, um, the Kitchenware Revolution in Iceland, which is a fascinating example. You know, have a look into it. No one ever talks about Iceland. The middle class rose up there, <coughs> overthrew the government, and rewrote the constitution um, a citizen's constitution online. No one ever talks about it. And Iceland is running a very successful uh, country today. The Indignados movement in 2011 onwards in Spain. Greece, the uprisings in Syntagma Square and so on, and across um, Greece against austerity and against IMF subjugation. The Arab Spring, the Occupy movement in the US, it spread across hundreds of cities in the US and even reached the UK and, and London, and I know some of um, Sam's work on Occupy London is very interesting. Gezi Park in Turkey is another example. The Yellow Vest movement in France is probably the latest manifestation of this. All under the banner of we are the 99%. But amongst all of these cases that I was looking at, um, or that, that were happening around me, certainly in the, in the initial stage in 2008-2009, I had this paradigmatic case study of Argentina to, to look to, from which, as I said earlier, many of the organising strategies, many of the symbols, 
and concepts from where they were adopted. So I, I came, became concerned with three key questions in the thesis, because the thesis was you know, a PhD, it was a number of years, I think mine was four years. Through that period, I started to um, become interested in these three, three questions. I'm not going to give you the answers to the questions, because I want you to buy a book or I want you to order it from the <laughs> university library, but uh, I'll give you the outline of, of my thinking. First of all, what critical realists describe as what are the generating um, factors that politicise struggling middle class citizens um, and help them to decide to collectively resist um, what's happened to them by joining protest movements and solidarity actions? And why, on the other hand, do others confine their, um, <coughs> their uh, kind of resistance, if you want, to the private realm of individual coping strategies? like self-employment, like, um, at best, going to vote to ballot box as a kind of individual act of resistance. And it was tri triangulating the results of World Bank survey data with Latino barometer public opinion data that I used to answer the first question in the case of Argentina. Then the second question was, how and why do patterns of protest, the patterns of participation in protest and contentious politics, by middle class, uh, struggling middle class citizens change over time. So for example, why in Argentina were middle class citizens more likely to passively resist their, um, their dissent under neoliberalism in the 1990s and the Carlos Menem, but in 2001 onwards, or 2001 at least 2003-2004, more likely to join protest movements and engage in the solidarity economy. Then that said, why do middle-class citizens then demobilise? So between 2003 and 2018, I categorise uh, these into four periods, whilst all the time remembering, of course, that the middle class is a tremendously heterogeneous actor, both politically, socially and culturally, so we can't generalise too much, but these are kind of general tendencies. So a period of demobilisation between 2003 and 2005, when Mr Kirchner um, first came to power, he established broad consensus, broad support for his national popular model in Argentina. Then the second stage, um, between 2006-2011, demobilisation, so a generally contented society, but with sporadic periods of unrest and revolt. We saw those in the countryside conflict in 2008, the Bloomberg protests in 2006. Then a period uh, in which this third period, which um, for me was probably the most interesting to look at um, and involved my kind of first, my second set of interview data, which is when passive dissidents turned into anti-government protests in Argentina against Cristina Kirchner. Uh, and then finally, what I described as a period of remobilization under the Cambiemos government since 2000, late 2015, uh, and the um, government of President uh, Melissa Macri, neoliberalism, austerity, and a return to corporatization and recession. So based upon three field work periods in six different regions of Argentina, and in-depth interviews with dozens of ordinary citizens in 2007, 2011, 2016, uh, many of whom had come from the, actually been uh, interviewed twice in the survey data by the World Bank, so I'd managed to track down the same people and, uh, knock on their doors. Um, so they had kind of five points in time uh, they were um, interviewed in some way. 
I conclude that consistent with Gramsci's theories, the patterns of political and social political pro and protest involvement depend on the fluctuating consent to which the, um, the, they give the dominant class their consent to rule over them. And whether support for counter-hegemonic pro uh, projects and ideas gained resonance or dissipated at different points in time. Then the third question was, what lessons can we learn from the Argentinian experience for beyond Argentina in terms of um, movements and why middle class um, citizens participate in them and what happens after the period of demobilisation. In particular, I was interested in the question of what mobilising vehicles can be established to maintain active citizenship as a bastion against the rolling back to neoliberal um, hegemonic projects that act in the interests of elites and against the subjugated classes, if you like, the middle class, um, the working class um, and others. Whilst all the time thinking in the contemporary climate, we live in a climate whereby there is something of a crisis of representation, perhaps more explicitly manifest in places like Iceland and Spain than Greece, but, well, Greece perhaps less so, but certainly we've seen currents of that in the UK through the rise of the, um, the Brexit party and anti-establishment politics, um, but generally obviously the, the hegemony um, is still intact. And then, um, how can non-activists be mobilised? How can an anti-politics mood be politicised in a more subtle way? How can a distant act, like privately expressing disagreement with, say, government through a private conversation, um, how can these disagreement uh, acts become the kind of stepping stone towards more explicitly political um, acts? How can that initial act of resistance be cultivated into something and transformed into moving and joining with others in solidarity um, in, in order to kind of establish more, a better grounding for um, progressive social change? Um, so there is a lot to be learned from Argentina's post-2001 crisis experience, both in terms of its successes and its failures. One of the best but um, not perfect examples of this is perhaps Podemos in Spain, which I think uh, Isabel might be talking about a bit afterwards. In terms of um, the way that they engage citizens in local community organising, um, welfare schemes and so on as a kind of subtle means of politicisation, whilst also engaging in the realm of electoral politics. <coughs> Also initiating other kind of counter-hegemonic schemes like uh, La Tuerca, which is a TV programme that Pablo Iglesias, the leader of Podemos, um, and others um, use to kind of counter the hegemonic uh, kind of discourse of, uh, in Spain. I actually remember meeting um, Juan Carlos Monedero in Buenos Aires in 2014, and we were both waiting, we were in a TV studio waiting to be interviewed on TV out there. Um, I was. Uh, on its Metro TV, I was, I was being interviewed about Argentina's battle with the vulture funds at the time, investment funds that were holding Argentina's economy to ransom and threatening to sue them for billions of dollars um, because the government was resisting attacks and refusing to, pay the, to, refusing to pay the money that they were claiming from having invested in Argentina's junk debt um, around 2001. Um, and I was carrying uh, my first book, Argentina Since 2001 Crisis, which I co-edited with Chris Wilder and Cara Levy. <laughs> and um, Juan Carlos said to me, 
um, you know, he said, do you mind if I have a look? So of course, I said, yeah, sure. So he kind of, he picked the book up, he flicked through a couple of pages, read the back cover, and then his, with his kind of very intellectual air through his uh, round spectacles, he said to me, you know, Daniel, um, when we were deciding to found Podemos, we actually looked at the Argentina case and post-2001 case very closely. The errors that they made, the movements made, the fact that they didn't directly go into it, you know, the, the, the route down in electoral politics was very much rejected, um, but also the successes. We asked ourselves the question, how can we convert the Indignado uprisings into a movement that could affect profound social change through the electoral system? Now, in Argentina, of course, you could say that it's happened through the Frente para la Victoria and through um, the Kirchner's Kirchnerismo, and there's no doubt about it, in, in my mind at least, Kirchnerismo achieved some incredible successes. The way that they turned around the economy after 2001 um, achieved uh, very strong growth figures, um, very strong figures in terms of wealth redistribution, reducing inequality, and to some extent, uh, reducing poverty. Uh, and, and actually, I would say, democratizing society as well. But um, one also has to concede that they did not emerge organically from the autonomous uprisings in the same way that um, perhaps Podemos did in Spain. Instead, what they did was they co-opted a lot of the existing movements and used existing party apparatus from inside the reformist wing of the establishment um, to do so. So just to finish, um, just to talk a little bit about the um, fieldwork itself. Um, one of the things I think I'm most proud of um, with this book is um, it provides a rare example of a longitudinal study that's taken place over the period of about 15 years in which four middle-class participants were interviewed on multiple occasions in order to track their trajectories and changes in their own political ideas, their subjectivities, their opinions. And um, the the fieldwork was tremendously enjoyable, it was intellectually very stimulating, uh, it was at times lonely, um, so I remember I was doing some interviews out in a tiny little rural village called Piedras Blancas, which is 80 kilometres from the nearest city, and I stayed, it was in the middle of winter and I had to stay in a wooden shack with no electricity. Um, but there were also a lot of um, depressing moments in terms of what people said to me, a lot of the reactionary um, attitudes of some people shocked me. Um, but uh, there were some funny moments too, so I remember that I was doing an interview with a young woman in Posadas, which is uh, in the province of Misiones, near the Brazilian border to the north of the country. And um, I knocked on the door in a kind of smart attire. Uh, we did an interview uh, just outside on the, on the pavement. And 20 minutes into the interview, she said to me, are you sure you're not a Jehovah's Witness? <laughs> We've been talking for 20 minutes and you've just worked out that I'm not trying to sell God to you, okay? <laughs> so I don't know what I was doing. Anyway. But there are two take-home messages, and I'll end on this. There are two take-home messages um, that my participants left me with, and they're reflected in the two sets, sets of responses that, um, that I can categorise here. One I would describe as anime, and the second one as hope. So anime, we're talking about those citizens who felt so neglected, whether justifiably or not, but that was their sentiment, by the government, by the state, since 2001, that they not only began to turn in on the very notion of democracy, but they also began to question whether the social norms of society 
well, that, that whole, you know, our kind of social fabric in place um, should actually be followed. So they responded to this through the interviews with uh, acts of symbolic violence, with racism, uh, and other kind of anti-social um, attitudes. Which, uh, you know, for those of you that are following Argentinian society and how it's developed since, there are a lot of kind of concerning facets um, in society, um, including the increased racism, anti-immigrant feeling, anti-Mapuche feeling, and so on. And anti-poor feeling as well, I would say. Then there's hope. Citizens, a lot of the citizens I spoke to were, very, were still nostalgic for that time, that magical moment in 2001 when they came together with people from the shanty towns, from the barrios, um, workers, and they felt so empowered by those experiences in 2001 that they could change the world, that those feelings were still within them to this date, in, as late as 2016, during the last set of interviews that I did. So the key here for those of us who are social scientists, we're interested in strengthening democracy, we're interested in um, supporting movements to, uh, to affect transformational change, is how do you develop projects that can engage with both sets of interviewees and all of those in between. So, here we are 15 years later with a finished product that I'm delighted to say is being endorsed by my friend Dr. Maristella Svampa, uh, the Argentinian sociologist and author. This is us at the um, Occupy camp, I think it was, was it 2010? 11. 11. Um, there's Greek there, but that's a, the solidarity symbol in Greek a couple of years ago. And also being endorsed by Paul Mason, um, the kind of former BBC Newsnight uh, journalist and Channel 4 journalist. You can follow the progress of the book either through the Rapage website or also through the Facebook page middle class mobilisation. Um, my aim is to produce a Spanish version in the next few months um, for a Latin American audience and also uh, hopefully a paperback version next year. Um, so I just want to end by thanking a few people. The full list of thanks is in the acknowledgement section of the book and obviously there's time now to mention everyone. But I want to thank first of all the publishers of Outreach, um, Natalia Mortensen, the commissioning editor, and Charlie, um, Charlie there, Charlie Baker. Um, he's running the store outside, and if you want to copy a few books, kind of go and buy a few books, if you've got a spare 500 pounds in your pocket. Um, <laughs> Only if you sign it. <laughs> yeah, I can be arranged. <laughs> in gold-tinted pen. <laughs> um, Hannah Brown, she helped me with a lot of the um, kind of proofreading work. Um, my wife, Tammy, she's missed her. She's going outside, okay. Thank <laughs> you later. She's very, very patient with me through the process of writing the book. To my parents, my dad's there, and my mum as well, for all your support and love over the years, and my sisters as well. Two of them are here, well, one of them's just left to chase after my nephew, I think. Um, and, and obviously, everyone here today, you know, you've all helped in one way or the other, just through being here or for being a friend over the years. Um, and I really hope to be able to catch up with you properly um, over wine at the end of the session. So, thank you. I hope we're going to have enough time to, um, to you know, be still ask you questions and have a bit of discussion um, uh, at the end. So I'll, um, I'll introduce Sam, who's going to speak next, uh, briefly. Um, so Sam is a lecturer.
Lecturer in Human Geography at Queen uh, Mary University in London and uh, Levin Hume Early Career Research Fellow. Um, he's uh, interested in the relationship between grassroots urban politics and territory, particularly in Latin America, um, and has worked in Occupy London uh, as well as doing work now in Buenos Aires. Great. Yeah. So uh, thanks for that. And yeah, I will be short because we do want to discuss with Dan, especially over wine. Um, and um, I would say the first thing is then go, go out and, and immediately buy that book. However, I think to do so might be then placing many of you in this category of, of the newly pauperized middle class or whatever. So perhaps refrain from that. But no, but seriously, I wanted to kind of start with a double congratulations. Firstly, Congratulations, so for those of you, and I suspect many of you do, um, but for those of you that don't know Dan as well as a person, um, let's just say he kind of tends to keep himself rather busy uh, in a number of different ways. And the fact that he managed to kind of pull this book together, I think is, is something to be hugely uh, um, congratulated and to be proud about. I think on various occasions I was speaking to him and he was often writing retreats in Argentina, Buenos Aires, and he said, yeah, I'll, I'll start it next week. There's a, some trade union strike that's come up and I need to, or we need, you know, called in for some interview for media. So I, I actually believe, started to believe, I'm not sure that this book's ever going to materialise. So I think well done for actually getting the thing out there because um, with the amount that you take on, that in itself is something to congratulate. But the, the second, the main <coughs> congratulations is that it really is a great book. And it's a book that even if perhaps you're not going to buy it immediately, get it into libraries, but do have a read because it's a really great, really great read. It's really enjoyable. And I think it's something which um, people who come from different levels of knowledge or backgrounds, both Argentina and some of the themes can kind of grapple and appreciate. It kind of speaks across those different, different levels. So I'll just kind of pull out a couple of the highlights for me. Um, and then... Um, by means of, and we may not have much time to go into it, but if we are going to get into discussion, there's a couple of things I thought I'd throw out there, which I'd be interested at least in discussing, the things which made me think about from the book, particularly with a view to kind of the what next, or what, what, you know, what, what next steps, how could it be extended, how could we take it forward, what are some of the questions that it leaves hanging. Um, so in terms of to the kind of elements to me that I think the book really achieved very well, apart from being just a well-written, enjoyable book. Um, well, firstly, in English, there isn't, we don't have that much about Argentina and about kind of revolt and mobilization in Argentina, certainly not in the book length. But even in terms of beyond English, that, uh, you know, I think it's, it, it's covering a really important uh, area, thinking about this kind of middle-class <coughs> focus, given that certainly in Spanish, there's been a huge quantity of, of, of scholarly and non-scholarly texts thinking about the Picateros and other movements which emerge, which I kind of would like to come back to later because you know there's a whole story there about how that fits in, but which emerged in the sort of mid 1990s. And there's been endless kind of sociological, you know, political scientists, geographers, and others kind of analyzing and researching them. Of that, a small amount of it made to, made to an English, but I think here this is kind of filling a really crucial gap by thinking about some of the mobilizations of the middle class, but particularly then this kind of longitudinal um, approach. Because a lot of people um, have kind of got either heard of or read brief snippets around the kind of 2001 moment, but it's hugely important to try and contextualize that. And I think, you know, Dan's been really uh, uh, fortunate that, you know, he's positioned himself well to be able to approach that from this kind of historical longitudinal vantage point. 
um, which is really necessary and really helpful, especially when it, you get into these questions about what, what is there to learn. And I really like the fact that the book kind of combines these, um, these kind of large databases, which I think uh, you know, are really uh, useful and helpful when trying to make sense of, of particular incidents and, 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 and moments um, and these kind of cycles of contention, but combines that with the kind of rich uh, qualitative uh, research in the second half of the book, you get these, these kind of great chapters where, which are filled with all these, uh, as we saw in the last slide there, all these really great um, quotations. And we start to almost get a sense of some of the characters um, as it was a relatively, because of the nature of returning all three times, it's a relatively constrained group. So we start to get a sense of some of those characters and, and how they were evolving, which is a fascinating thing in itself. Um, at the same time, as I mentioned, I think for those people that are perhaps less familiar, both with Argentina and also to questions particularly around social movements, I thought it was a really great, in addition to, uh, to, to the rich analysis, being a great kind of introduction, uh, both to kind of the political context in Argentina, but also I think in the second chapter, there's these really helpful kind of mini snippet sections where you kind of give this whole overview of kind of every social movement theory, um, but in a really condensed way. So I think it'd be really useful Again, with a nod to getting it into the libraries for those of you that do teach, as a great kind of um, uh, intro to thinking about Argentina and how you can apply social movement theory. So there's a really that's a really going to be um, a useful deployment of the book. Um, and then the final kind of uh, really rich well, there's not final, there's many many other things, but just in the interest of time and at some point just shut me up because I know you were too polite to do so down and you would have to us. Um, is the comparative thing, right, which is kind of weaved throughout um, and it kind of came up in Dan's talk with this kind of nodding, this back and forth with the kind of present and with different uh, you know, geographical places, but particularly um, uh, with kind of Southern Europe um, and the kind of 2011 the moment. And that kind of keeps it alive and keeps it relevant and keeps it moving beyond the case there. So that's really, really important. And there are many, many other things that, are, that I could say and I just don't have time to go into. And, and, and following Dan's lead, I think that, you know, we want to leave you a bit hanging so that you've got incentive to go away and read it, which you definitely should. So just for the final few minutes, um, just the kind of two or three uh, points for discussion, which depending on, because I know there's a mix of people here, you know, friends, family and, and, and academics, uh, just for, for, for some of us, they may be interesting for others, they might be less so, but um, I, you know, certainly from my perspective they are. So one of the key things is about middle class, right, that, that's the kind of the key focus, uh, which is really interesting for me because I actually haven't taken much time to sit down and think theoretically about the middle class, particularly theoretically about the middle class in the context of revolt, mobilisation, and I think you kind of revolution and, and, and these kind of radical discourses kind of slip in there quite regularly. So the first question then, and this is kind of you know what how I can take forward and extend and think about this book. You know, I suppose this is from my own particular interest, but I think it should speak to, to more general issues. Is about what are some of the characteristics, but also what might be the role or the historical function of the middle class. I think there's kind of two ways of approaching that coming out from here. There's one which is kind of extending, so you open a number of theoretical avenues and, and you know, another rich thing about this book is that you bring in these different kind of theorists which seem to take on different, uh, different weight at different historical moments in time from the kind of Hollowayan, Negrian kind of 2001 moment, then moving more into kind of Gramscian analysis later on. 
So from these different kind of theoretical perspectives, what, how would we both characterize what a middle class revolt or rebellion is? But perhaps the kind of bigger, more challenging question would be what's their historical role in kind of more Marxian sense? Like what's the function of the middle class? You know, how do they relate to others, if at all, in terms of their protagonism or their revolutionary capacity? How can we make sense of that? What's the significance? What's at stake in talking about, what's at stake, first of all, in categorizing the middle class? Because presumably to do that, again, we're thinking about that with some kind of historical function or protagonism. Um, protagonism being a word I've started using a lot, but mainly on the back of speaking with Argentines here, it's a helpful word there. It sort of works in English, right? So what's the historical function? How can we theorize that? And there's presumably different, you know, Marxian and post-Marxian approaches doing so. Um, but given the nature of this book, it seems particularly important to do so. And I'm going to kind of hold off from giving my own answers to these questions <coughs> in the interest of time. And the second part of that is, okay, apart from the kind of how we might theorize it, well, how can we kind of fine-tune what the political legacy has been? So a real strength of this book is it asks the questions and it provides the answers that, again, Dan didn't want to give you, and I won't either, about <laughs> why the middle class mobilised, um, particularly different moments of time, and it's really good at doing that. There's still an ongoing question there about well, what's been their broader political, uh, and if you want political, economic legacy in Argentina, and we could then ask the same questions elsewhere. And that's the kind of question that's got me thinking, and partly reflecting my own ongoing research, which has been with political parties, uh, particularly during and also their the continuity after the, the Kirchnerist uh, period. Um, and it seems to me there's a couple of issues or, or questions which, which we could take up here. First of all, it seems to me that the book could both, um, both over and also under-exaggerate the role of the middle classes in terms of what their legacy would be. Well, that, I don't think that, you know, if we followed through, if we continued some of the arguments in the book about the significance of them, we could do that. So on the one hand, the kind of, uh, the more sceptical view about the role of the middle classes in terms of what's happened in Argentina over the last 20 years would be that they've been relatively minor. And that, again, the key protagonists here have been the large um, working class organizations that predominantly came about through the Picadero organizations outside of Buenos Aires and then in the, predominantly in the periphery of Gran Buenos Aires, which were really booming in the late 1990s and that, that very much preceded Hot banging of 2001 and that was the key these were the key kind of uh, again protagonists of, of political social transformation and that everything that came after uh, Duvalde and then and then Kirchnerism was very much a response to them so if we were to go back to something I haven't done for a while but you mentioned this kind of autonomous Marxist perspective and they were kind of leading and in a sense the government's response that they were kind of the weight or the political weight to what what was being followed and afterwards and that you know, and you mentioned the kind of questions of how Nestor and then Christina had to relate and respond and incorporate, or, or um, one can use um, more, um, you know, less polite ways of describing that. But the middle, but my point is, in that we could, one could argue that the middle class rebellions was just a momentary blip that had no real political significance. Who really cared? What, what impact did the kind of assemblies of 2001 have? What was really important were the huge, the large MTDs and the other Picatello movements that were particularly strong in Greater Buenos Aires, and they really demonstrated a huge capacity for mobilizing, which then we can argue, well, they set the tone for the dynamics for the Kitchener government, the middle classes were peripheral. 
So there's one question that's, uh, that's the kind of way in which one could say actually immigrant policies weren't that significant. But then to flip it the other way um, and say actually does the book not give enough significance to middle classes, there are two elements that, that made me think about it. Firstly, it's about the kind of um, where, you know, the, you've got this great historical advantage point about this look, following these, 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 these newly poor people over the course of 15 years. There's also a question of where you're looking at them. Firstly, and you suggest this at one point, are they predominantly based in Buenos Aires, in, in, in Cabo, particularly in the autonomous city of Buenos Aires? But then secondly, what's the scale of analysis we should use to think about them? That made me think, and it's a question that maybe uh, Isabel will pick up, um, and others here, <coughs> just Ryan over there, Ryan Sentner, but other people working on urban questions. But what happens when we start thinking about the legacies of the middle class with respect to the kind of urban politics? But could, could one argue that middle class mobilizations have been particularly strong at an urban scale and particularly focused on a range of different urban problematics? Gentrification, NIMBY struggles, and for example, if one follows through some of the legacies of the 2001 assemblies, we can see that many of them did institutionalize themselves. So in, 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 in more, uh, in, you know, mini ways. So, for example, the Palermo Viejo assembly, which turned into a kind of cooperative food market, and that was their legacy. More generally, in, in, in some of my research, you know, looking at how some of them ended up forming parts of uh, movements demanding greater democracy, partly tied into some questions around participatory governance, but then more strongly around these decentralization processes. So they became very... Uh, um, committed or kind of refocusing some of their, their questions to the urban, which then particularly unfolded in the Ibarra government. And you do mention at some point, I know, the kind of questions around participatory budgeting that were implemented for a brief period. But is there a question that when we're talking about the, uh, the, the middle class, we need to be looking at perhaps a different scale and that some of their legacies would be much stronger if you focused on that. But equally, what's their geographical spread? Is it, it were they predominantly just in the in Cava? or were they elsewhere? So that's one bit. But the other bit that I want to kind of bring up, and this is a question, but it's just it was kind of bugging me, I suppose, about how or why this didn't or not fit in. So when you've got that, can you just put on that the slide where you show your four stages of mobilization? Mm -hmm. So for, in the book, uh, Dan talks about, so there's 2001 to 2002, where there's the strong mobilization in the middle class, which is predominantly Lassos, the Asambleas, and other urban kind of uprisings. And then, then you mentioned these sporadic moments, which you particularly highlight 2008, and you focus on particularly the, the kind of the crisis in Campo, but looking at those sectors, the rural sectors themselves, who are roadblocking. And then you jump to 2012 and 2013, when there were some casarolazos against Cristina, then Cambiemos. So my big question, and again, this is getting on to what my own research looks at, is why do we not include in that the the the, the quantitatively, but also qualitatively significant um, Kirchner's mobilizations. <laughs> particularly kind of La Campera, but other organizations who at least in Buenos Aires, I would argue, have a strong middle-class component. Because that would seem to me to, to, to represent a rather significant moment of middle-class mobilization. Now, I think, you know, when I was thinking about how or why that may or may not be included, one potential element is if we're focusing, or you're focusing more explicitly on anti-government mobilization. Um, the other would be if there isn't a strong enough middle class constituency to them. Uh, and again, we might need to get you know, more data on that, but I would suspect at least, again, if, if we're having this kind of urban focus, that you would see that in movements like the company having a significant middle class 
um, composition. But then it also might then potentially be stretching or moving outside some of the theoretical frameworks. And I would then open the question as, you know, looking at, at Gramsci and some of those post-Marxist debates, what it would do to then think about populism. Because if we're going to try and understand how do we make sense of some of these mobilizations, one of the ways I think would be to, to have a greater interrogation with, with populism, which is certainly what people are doing here in the UK, in Spain in particular, and elsewhere, in some of the post-2011 movements. And the other, uh, which is something I've just personally have been interested in, is thinking about the kind of hybridity between social movements and parties, what um, the Italian sociologist Donatella della Porta talks about as, as movement parties, right? Um, and I certainly think that there's scope to think about some of the if you like pro the mobilizations in that context. Now, this isn't to be normative or not in terms of what these movements did and didn't achieve, but it just seems to be that is, a, I would say, a significant mobilization which includes a chunk of the middle class. And I wondered how that would fat in, fit in. Have I gone over already? Yeah. Okay. So I've got lots of other points, but I just then end again saying that, um, you know, provoked, you know, some really, um, for me, important. Um, fascinating uh, future lines of inquiry and I definitely encourage everyone to at some point get a copy of it and, and, and have a read for yourself because it's a really really great book. Thank you ever so much for raising all those questions. <laughs> But uh, let me give uh, a bit of time to Isabel so, uh, so she has a moment. Uh, Isabel Gutierrez Sanchez is an anthropologist and architect uh, by training, and she has an MSc in City Design and Social Science from the London School of Economics. Um, and she's just finishing her PhD on self organized um, initiatives of welfare provision in Athens, which I think is what she might be telling us a bit about. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. First of all, thank you, uh, uh, well, congratulations for the, on the publication of this important uh, work and thank you very much for having me today uh, in this special uh, event. So yeah, I'm going to, to provide some insights about uh, the cases of Spain, where I come from, and from Greece as well, which I've been studying for the last four years as, as part of my, of my PhD. Um, on a personal level, Argentina has been very important, a very important reference uh, for me, especially since um, 2011, when I joined the, the 15th M or the 15M movement, also known as the Indignados movements in, in Spain, and particularly in Madrid, my, my hometown. I had learned about the, the crisis of 2001 uh, and the historical popular uprisings uh, and the emblematic Que se vayan todos, uh, so, so powerful. Uh, as part of my studies in anthropology um, and social movements. However, it, it was not until the 15M movement that the Argentinian movements of resistance against crisis and of against the neoliberal project more, more broadly become a truly source of reference and, and knowledge uh, and inspiration for my personal political development. For the many of us, middle class young people who had not participated in the previous cycle of, of mobilizations in the early 2000s, um, the 15M movement in Spain and the movement of the squares, as it came to be known in, in Greece, or occupying the UK and the, and the US, constituted an experience that would strongly mark um, our respective lives from, from now on, from then on. Um, so yeah, this is what I'm going to talk to you uh, about tonight. Uh, the cycle of social and political mobilization that emerged in May 2011, its legacy and its eventual closing, which we could situate in this 
uh, same year 2019. I will focus on Spain uh, and, and then in Greece as well. Uh, Dan's work, namely the examination of the reasons that drive middle-class populations to engage in political actions and, and organization, as well as how they, why they eventually demobilize, are remarkably insightful and indeed helpful to frame and actually understand what has happened in, in both uh, countries in recent and in, in Spain from 2011 to, uh, 2000, uh, to this year, 2019. Um, so let me start with a brief account of, of what happened on 2011, which I, I, I think you are probably uh, familiar with, but nevertheless, I, I have some pictures which I think uh, are always uh, useful. Um, so yeah, this is the, uh, the, the encampment in the encampment, sorry, in Puerta del Sol in Madrid. Um, on 15 May 2011, uh, a citizen-led platform named Democracia Real Ya, uh, Real Democracy Now, uh, called a demonstration in Madrid against the political and economic regime and the austerity measures, which had started to be implemented in the country in the wake of the 2008 uh, global financial crisis. Against all odds, the turnout uh, was unexpectedly, unexpectedly, <coughs> unexpectedly large. That night, a small group of participants in the demonstration decided to stay over in Puerta del Sol, the emblematic square in the city center. Early in the next morning, they were evicted for, uh, by the municipal police. <coughs> The news of the event spread quickly through the different social media, and in the evening, a spontaneous concentration packed Puerta del Sol again. Provided with cardboards and some sleeping bags, a group of people, significantly larger than the one of the previous night, started to set up what for the following two months would develop into a makeshift city within the core of, of Madrid uh, itself. Here are some with assemblies. I will come to this especially uh, in a moment. For its part in Greece, 10 days later, on the 25th of, of May, massive demonstrations took over the most emblematic squares uh, in, in cities like Athens and Thessaloniki. Sintagma Square, which sits in front of the Greek parliament, was eventually occupied and following the example of Puerta del Sol, an incumbent was set up. The occupations were organized and sustained through self-organized open assemblies and different committees and working groups, uh, which together with improvised kindergartens, infirmaries, libraries, and kitchens, provided the supporting infrastructure for a growing movement demanding a radical political and economic uh, overturn. So these are, for instance, the different uh, working groups. Here is, uh, we have the, the press um, committee, uh, the uh, improvised kitchens, so everybody uh, was provided with food. Here is in the occupation in, of Syntagma Square in, in Athens, in front of the Greek Parliament, which was completely packed as well for, for over a month. Uh, assemblies with the emblematic uh, <coughs> rising of the, of the hands, uh, um, approve or disapprove agreements or disagreements. So I would like to, to, to bring some notes on the, on the incumbents uh, themselves. And first regarding so the social composition, which I think relates to the work uh, of Dan. The occupations brought together people from different ages, economic and political backgrounds. 
Some of them were already organized and had been militant in political groups somewhere across the spectrum of the political left. However, many more had no significant political backgrounds or experience in political organizing. Largely, they were middle-class populations crossed by a common sentiment of disaffection and rejection of institutional politics. Interestingly, and as Dan observed in the case of Argentina, concerns over political rights and civil participation, as well as the increasing perception of a structural corruption within the state institutions, were at first the major mobilizing factors behind the protest. Way more than, for instance, a, a personal economic grievances or concerns about uh, social rights. However, I think both in Spain, in Spain and Greece, the 15M and the movement of the squares triggered a point of inflection in the public opinion since the outbreak of the crisis. Governments and the, uh, and the main media had put a lot of effort in picturing austerity as the only possible project for economic and fiscal recovery. However, slogans in the protests like, it is, not a, it is not a crisis, it is a fraud, we are the 90-90%, we are not merchandise in the hands of politicians and bankers in Spain, or we do not owe, we will not sell away, we will not pay in Greece, revealed a, a new perspective. Citizens had been made responsible for a crisis tri uh, triggered by the financial sector, and the new market-driven uh, policies to counter it were severely undermining their life conditions and rights. This new understanding sank legitimacies uh, that seemed rather solid, bringing to the fore a narrative of the top versus the bottom, and somehow that somehow displaced the long-standing or, or more established uh, right versus left. Nonetheless, the anti-austerity discourse, however, uh, did not become as prominent in Spain as it did in, as it did in Greece. Um, oh, uh, not in vain, it was in the latter, in the latter uh, which would suffer the hardest austerity measures uh, ever implemented in a European country as a condition imposed by the Troika, the IMF, uh, the European Central Bank and the European Commission for the bailout uh, programs. Greek citizens would overwhelmingly express their opposition to austerity in the Greek bailout, uh, bailout referendum, <coughs> which was held in July 2015, in which the OHI vote, OHI means uh, no in, uh, in Greek, uh, won with 62% uh, of them in, in total. Uh, the referendum again brought thousands again uh, to the streets uh, across Greece. Um, nonetheless, in my view, the most powerful element of the encampments was the self-organization of a life in common. The potential to open new possibilities was not so much, I think, in the general assemblies, which I see them as a, like a sort of new version of parliamentary politics, but in the immediate practices of organization and running of the infrastructures, food, caring, learning, etc., which hold these temporary autonomous territories. Organized around them, people took decisions based on the materiality and contingency of each situation, discarding pre-established norms or protocols. There was a conscious collective effort to care for each other and to make the space habitable for everyone. It is in this sense that elements of a new politicization emerge, I think. Um, a new idea of emancipating politics gained traction that of a politics stemming from the collective transformation of everyday life. A politics stripped of pre-established identities, instead organized around the economy and maintenance of material resources and space. 
a politics in which participation displays representation. Ultimately, a politics around the construction and maintenance of desirable forms of life capable of enduring materially. In this line, um, the experiences of the squares, the encounters and exchanges that were made possible, pose also a challenge to the well-established neoliberal definition of reality. The experiences of cooperation among strangers, uh, this process of becoming anonymous, the body presence uh, extended for days, all these aspects enable the creation of new bonds and alliances which challenge the entrepreneurial conception of life as once um, Foucault uh, referred to it. And its myths of, inter of independence and individualistic self-realization through competition, consumerism and private ownership. The 15M movement in space and its homologous in, in Greece yielded new collective processes of subjectivation, which opened the field for the formation of new possible ways, new possible name, uh, names uh, or ways to name these emerging collectivities. As the Argentinian professor Fra, uh, Francisco Ferrara pointed out in his uh, very beautiful work, uh, Más allá del corte de rutas, beyond the, the roadblocks, that encounter in which all partakers share the process of discovery and, and transformation makes possible the emergence of new imaginaries capable of, capable of reordering life expectations, redefining wealth, and transform the field of, of desire. So now moving to the legacy of, of the encampments and of uh, the occupations. Um, the encampments uh, were eventually dismantled, yet they left a legacy of collective participation and self-organization that would reactivate the grassroots of the Spanish and Greek societies for the following years. In Madrid and Athens, the spirit of the squares found a fertile arena in many local areas where neighborhood assemblies were created as well as grassroots, uh, grassroots initiatives. Here are some examples from Madrid, a neighborhood assembly. Here is a, like a, a collectively run garden in the center of Madrid. This is the case of El Campo de la Cebada, which is also, a, it's already been closed, but um, for three years provided a, like the, the neighborhood with a, like a social infrastructures uh, for many gatherings and events um, and, and social meetings. And here in Greece, um, citizen left uh, self-organized initiatives like soup kitchens, social groceries, exchange networks without middlemen, with middlemen, social clinics and pharmacies, cultural and social spaces, accommodation center for migrants and refugees, comprise a growing grassroots movement seeking to cope with, as well as fight back, the devastating impacts of, austerity, of the austerity regime in their everyday lives. It would be called the, the solidarity movement. Uh, and I've been studying it for the last, uh, for the last years. So here's the, the social kitchen, no a los anthropos, which means the other human. Uh, it started with uh, uh, just one individual and then it grew uh, a lot and now they've managed to, to get like a, a building. So they've established their, their headquarters and they have a space for kids as well, for like uh, educational uh, support and many other activities. They uh, organize a lot of parties as well, which is quite interesting because they claim like uh, that is also a way to, to, to reclaim a space, right? And, and also to celebrate the joy that we're not just victims of the crisis, actually, we, we've come together and we, we want to fight back um, 
this is a associate clinic uh, in Omonia in the, in the center of, uh, of Athens, which is run completely by volunteers, uh, medics and, and non-professionals uh, and non-medics alike. <coughs> this is a, a, like a, a kind of accommodation center for, uh, with migrants and, and refugees. Uh, they occupied an abandoned uh, former hotel and for the last three years they well, it, they've transformed it, they turned it into a like a thriving housing community, uh, also um, like very politically. We, one of the things that I find more powerful in terms of politics of these uh, initiatives is that they combine like the provision of uh, some sort of welfare and social protection or, or like uh, some sort of solutions for, for practical problems with the articulation of political demands um, and, and political actions uh, and engagement on uh, in broader struggles. So that's a way in the. So this is one of the rooms of the of the hotel, which is which is not a hotel anymore. <coughs> um, this is a community center where they have like a um, a free shop, and here is the kitchen. Um, so yeah. Um, in Spain, the the uh, yeah the fifteen M movement contributed to win the demands of LAPA, which probably you've you've heard about it. It's a grassroots uh, platform for people affected by by mortgages, uh, that for a long time had Ada Colau, who's now the current uh, mayor of Barcelona, as the spoke uh, uh, as their spoke person. Uh, so they contribute to to bring these demands to the center of the public debate as well as in paving the way for a series of social mobilizations that took place in 2013 called Las Mareas, the Tides. This set of protests, um, here for instance, the, the Green Maria, uh, organized around demands for education, healthcare, white marea, social care, orange marea, access to water, blue marea, forced migration, garnet marea, gender-based inequality, purple marea, Marea and unemployment, red marea, evidence the severe crisis not only of the labor market, but of all the domains concerning the sustenance, the sustenance of livelihoods and, and social life. On the other hand, and I'm just gonna briefly uh, mention it, the 15 movement would also foster the creation of new political parties like Partido X in 2013 and Podemos in 2014 as well as platforms, as the platforms Aura Madrid and Barcelona in Común, etc., that in 2015 made it to the city councils in what was interpreted as an institutional prolongation of the, of the movements. Um, so now, closing of the, of the cycle. Uh, what is the current situation of all these initiatives and, and, and that uh, were brought about in the wake of the 15 movement and the, the movement of the squares in Greece. Um, I think that for both countries, this year, 2019, as I've mentioned already, has particularly marked the closing of the cycle of mobilizations. In Greece, the Prime Minister Tsipras announces in August last year the end of austerity, meaning the end of the bailout programs. Yet, despite the very optimistic rhetoric of the government, declaring that the crisis was over, the reality is far from that. The rate of youth uh, unemployment remains over 40%, 
34.8% of Greeks live in poverty or, or in risk of, of poverty. And there are over 70,000 um, officially asylum seekers in the country at the moment, with more than over than 15,000 of these people living in daring conditions in hotspots uh, in the islands. In the regional and municipal elections, which were held uh, a couple of weeks ago, in 2nd of June, Nea Democratia, which is the Conservative Party, made important gains, winning nearly all regions and in, in the cities and in important cities like Athens and Thessaloniki. Cyprus has called snap parliamentary elections for the 7th of July. Repression of social movements and solidarity initiatives has already increased over the past months. Uh, I was in Athens a month ago, and uh, this growing sentiment, like many of my friends uh, shared with me, of like uh, fatigue, frustration, uh, and really not knowing what uh, what to do, was very was very prominent. Uh, also, non-parliamentary political groups like Antarsia uh, was completely shocked because they obtained worse results uh, than they had uh, expected in the elections. As regards Spain, where we had regional and municipal elections as well um, in, on 26th of May, the results for the left, and in particular for Podemos, were quite disastrous. The so-called city councils of change, ayuntamientos del cambio, were defeated. Manuela Carmena, the mayor of Madrid, has lost the mayor's office. Anada Colau in Barcelona was surpassing, surpassed um, in votes by the pro-independence uh, party. Vox, a newly emerged far-right party in Spain, has made it to many regional parliaments. Many have interpreted these events as the end of the, of the 15M cycle. And the truth is that the mobilization and the level of grassroots participation in the neighborhoods were gradually decreasing since 2015. Some who have been rather critical with the politics of the city councils of, of change and the respective yeah, politics attribute this demobilization to the institutionalization of the movements fostered ever since those entered or uh, they made it to the institutions. So here, sorry, our photos of the, of the Malaya. But, uh, however, despite this scenario doesn't seem like very encouraging, as always, as um, Dan already mentioned, there is always hope, right? Uh, today, this today this hope, I think, lies within the feminist movement, which in Spain dragged over 5 million people uh, to the streets on each March uh, in the event of the women's strike. And in Greece, albeit way smaller, nonetheless, two weeks, ago, uh, two, two weeks ago, won a historic victory. They managed to overthrow the new definition of rape proposed by the Greek government, which sought to typify rape only in case of physical violence and not on the basis of lack of consent. Against the odds, uh, Greece will become uh, the, uh, the ninth, uh, the ninth uh, country in Europe to recognize this, uh, that sex without consent is, is rape. Here, are, here is uh, so part of the of this campaign um, uh, that was um, like pushed very much by the feminist uh, feminist movement in in Greece. And also we have the, 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 the global climate movement, which is being led by, by, by the youth across, uh, across the, the planet, actually. Um, 
So yeah, in my view, as concerns these two movements, there are reasons to be hopeful and expect that they bring about new cycles of mobilizations with specific implications in the different locals and, and situated context. And I think I'm, I'm gonna leave it here. So thanks. about consent to the dominant class in terms of your thesis with regard to demobilization. So I mean, I'm thinking on my feet, so I might have this wrong to keep it pithy. Does that mean that Nestor Kirchner represented the interests of the dominant class? And if so, how was that? Because I'm sure there are many Kirchnerists that would not be happy about that characterization. I think he was looking at you. <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm sure the whole of the panel might like to come back on that. But Dan, would you like to start? Um, Chris, you always get in with the first question. Every single talk I ever did. It's always a really difficult one as well. Um, I don't want to lose Kishner's friends in my answer. Um, look, I think the thing about uh, Peronism, as you study yourself and Kishnerism, in particular, um, is one has to understand the dominant class. One, it's not a homogenous group, um, especially in societies where um, there's a certain yeah. level of um, sub-development in terms of what Westerners understand as development, at least. The, you know, you've always got a dominant class which is split into the, the, bourgeois, the national bourgeoisie and the kind of the dominant class which is kind of... Um, whose interests are expressed through transnational corporations and foreign capital. Now, um, you know, I'm sure there are people in the room that don't really understand what Peronism means, and that's every single person in the room because it's impossible to understand, um, especially to a kind of European audience. But um, I don't think I understand what Peronism means. So I've been <laughs> studying you, it for 15 years. Right. Yeah. So, um, look, I mean, Kishnerism itself, well, it had a, a number of contradictions within it. So it claimed to represent the national popular model, and it did, and it did a lot of uh, good things in terms of um, kind of looking after um, kind of kind of poorer sectors, the organised working class. And if, you know, if one looks at the how real terms wages increased over the period, for instance, or the social plans that you know you, you know very well that helped uh, millions of people to escape from poverty, and so on and so forth. So clearly, um, Kishnerism. Um, I don't think anyone can deny it, acted uh, very much in the interests of um, kind of the, the national working class and, and the poor and so on. Um, it also had certain ties with um, domestic industry as well, uh, particularly in the kind of soya industries and so on. But then the contradictions come in, and you know, I'm kind of going to slightly run work back at you a bit here, in terms of the, well, there are a number of big transnational corporations with whom it signed deals and actually opened up Argentina's economy in a lot of ways to 
um, foreign capital, so I'm thinking Monsanto, um, I'm thinking um, Chevron, uh, and, and they, uh, they did a certain amount of environmental damage and also actually um, even a lot of the kind of indigenous populations were, um, didn't do very well in Kishinev. So um, I think one can understand, it's a really complex kind of question in terms of, you know, did Kishinevism represent the dominant class? Because of the specificities of Peronism, which is always sought to both represent, um, you know, it's kind of a corporatist model by which they bring in and try to look after various groups at, at the same time, the domestic working class, the domestic bourgeoisie, um, at the same time, it's a really kind of difficult question to answer. Um, so I don't have a perfect answer, um, but it's it's a complex answer that probably we can discuss a bit more Absolutely. later. Yes. Would you like to say something to that? Well, I've said a lot already, and I've asked the last time. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. So, I, thank you very much for um, helping us, or trying to help us understand all these issues that we are going through in colonization in the world. Um, I was just wondering. Uh, sorry, I'm obviously being with my accent, um, but I was wondering what your views are on uh, some other type of colonization that we've seen more recently, like for example, female or women movement or the indigenous movements that we've seen in different parts of the country. Um, so things that might not be so obviously related to material inequalities. Mm -hmm. uh, what your reading is, and if you think that your book can help us shed some light on those, on those things. So um, one of the, just kind of responding to both your questions and one of the points that Sam made as well, is that um, I think it's a fair point that um, probably I don't deal enough in terms of the kind of progressive middle class mobilizations in the book. I do talk about, for instance, um, well, the, the, the couple of things on this really. Um, I do mention, for example, the uh, kind of Calpa Blanca, a lot of the kind of uh, kind of middle class uh, mobilizations from within the trade union movement, both um, during the 90s and then since 2001. So, for example, a lot of the kind of CTA protests, the university students, the new Menos are mentioned as well um, in several parts in terms of the last two or three years that I cover um, uh, and that kind of thing. But I think, in terms of because the, the analysis is very much data driven mm. and the interviewees who I spoke to. Um, were deliberately not political activists, so I didn't uh, kind of bring in the kind of La Campora, Kistanista kind of uh, things, but it's probably a fair point that I could have um, mentioned it a bit more. One of the interesting findings that I came to, and this is from the quantitative analysis, is that um, it actually wasn't, in terms of the kind of impoverished middle class and their participation, especially in 2002, 2001-2002, is that there was no difference. Uh, it wasn't their actual impoverishment that sparked their uh, involvement in, in kind of protest movements. It was, there were other factors, for instance, um, I find um, kind of J-curve theory to have been proven in the sense that it was uh, the extent of relative deprivation that sparked their, so it's kind of, you know, that the extent of loss was something that did kind of provoke um, a protest response. So in a way, some of the kind of new social movement theory um, ideas that it's actually non-material concerns that are what generate 
kind of enough anger or one's desire to participate in protest movements um, was proven to be the case. And I think uh, when I talk about material concerns, I'm talking about, um, you know, is it directly to do with wages um, in terms of the, uh, the kind of traditional sense of understanding protest. Um, so I think we can see kind of the um, indigenous rights movement, um, especially with the mobilizations around Santiago Maldonado and the um, uh, state murders of, of him, of disappearance and murder, and of um, uh, Rafael Nahuel as well, and all of that, and um, the Neo Nemenos movement, which is, you know, literally, was it two million women on the streets um, in the Neo Nemenos protests? It kind of represents um, a new wave of, of protests in Argentina over non material concerns, and obviously there are materialist concerns in there because of, you know, one of the the uh, demands of the new women's um, movement and the women's movement in Argentina, understandably, is to do with um, kind of wage parity and those kind of things, but uh, to do with reproductive rights and domestic violence and all these kind of things. So, um, in in a way, I think one could say that trying to combine your your question with your one of your questions about legacies, one of the things that I think we can see in Argentina today is the legacy of two thousand and one. Is you had a whole new generation of uh, people, young people in Argentina, who, and, and let's not forget Argentina has always been a traditionally highly mobilised society, and its middle class has always been highly mobilised as well, um, politically and in terms of protest and stuff. But one of the legacies is that um, the, well, various, the, the legacies of the post-dictatorship period, now that the fear of going out and protesting, which may still exist, and I did find existed in a lot of people who are over the age of, say, 45, 50, doesn't exist in young people anymore. And Neil Menos, I would say, is a, a young women-led movement. I think that's the same, but it, it did... When I was actually out interviewing women in the Neil Menos protest movement in um, 2018, yeah, last year, um, is that that, and also they were the first generation um, born after 2001, and I think uh, there's a kind of... Um, one of the legacies, if you like, of that period was, you know, this period of everyone coming together across classes, which one can also see in the New and Menace movement. It is one of the uh, kind of um, criticisms of the women's movement, both in this the feminist movement in this country and others, has been that it's too middle class dominant. I don't know if you agree if that's the same in, in, in Argentina as well, but it did seem to me to be, to some extent at least, a multi-sectoral movement. Um, of women and feminists of, of, of all kinds coming across and, and working together to, to try and get change. And that has, that is what I think, that idea of coming together on the streets across class, which was not born in 2001, but is probably the most dramatic example that we've ever seen in Argentina of it happening, um, is kind of the legacies we can see in the kind of movements that, that you mentioned and, and that kind of thing, yeah. Probably have time for one more question. Oh, uh, hi, I'm Tyler from Westminster School. Firstly, I'm very thankful for giving us such insights about how middle class revolt, especially in Argentina, which I previously didn't know much about. So I'm quite interested because obviously most of the stuff you mentioned is physical revolt. So in such an era when technology evolves so quickly, so how would that have an impact on middle class people? revolts and whether they would impose a greater pressure to the government to 
the providing benefits or by the downside to the involves. So I wonder what would be the pros and cons about technology's impact on these kind of things. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Clive. So there was a study done, it wasn't my study, it was, I can't remember, it was another study um, about what the most um, common form of protest was in Argentina around the time of 2001, 2002. And it actually found that the most, this was a study by, um, I can't remember the paper now, but it was about um, the, the Argentinian middle class. It actually found that internet protest was the most common. And this is surprising because we're talking about 2001 here, when I think the, the internet use has actually increased by something like 15 times in Argentina since then. But clearly, um, you know, one, one can't just think about protest in its physical manifestation. One of the kind of criticisms that I make of my own research, or limitations if you like, is that in terms of the um, quantitative survey and results that I did, I was relying purely upon the questions that had already been asked by the World Bank, which didn't just include kind of uh, coping strategy responses, but also protest responses. And subtle forms of non-physical protests, so for instance, um, technology, the use of social media, also actually things like graffiti, things like criminal behaviour um, for people who had fallen so low that they had no choice but to, um, to engage in criminal activity. Those um, protests just weren't registered at all, so they're kind of the hidden resistance that um, just wasn't recorded. And of course, hidden resistance can kind of take many guises, and I did use the example of the kind of dissenting conversation. Um, and so um, I think, you look, technology, it's, it's impossible to, to get away from. And a lot of the protest uh, movements, a lot of the kind of, um, both on left and right, both in Argentina and beyond, technology is, is so key to it. So if you think about the mobilizing strategies of Podemos in Spain, um, social media plays a huge role in that. In Argentina, the right wing, Cambiemos, um, have set up a kind of call center that employs 40 people to work full-time just as kind of hackers. I think it's an idea that they got from the Russians, from Putin, to hack, to go onto social media and troll and all this, and I've been a victim of it myself, and probably some other people in the room have. So they recognise the importance of it too. Um, if you look even to Britain and the Labour Party, they, you know, one of the, um, the strategies, one of the reasons that um, a lot of analysts look to for their success in 2017, relative success in terms of having the biggest increase in Labour votes since 1949 uh, was precisely the use of social media as an effective tool to mobilise and um, support. So yeah, I think it's obviously, and if you look at Paul Mason's work and his book, uh, Why It's Kicking Off Everywhere, he points to the use of social media as playing such an integral role in terms of the Arab Spring, in terms of um, France as well, in terms of the anti-Kishna mobilisations as well, and technology was, um, especially in this age where kind of protest groups are rejecting more and more political parties or trade unions for the reasons that we've discussed today as a mobilising vehicle. So absolutely the kind of anonymous um, idea of organising through social media, um, I think it will become increasingly important. I did have a massive response to Sam, but I'm guessing I'm not going to get time to... Would you like to have 30 seconds? Or oh, gosh, 30 seconds. <laughs> I thought you were writing Mass a new massive, book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so bullet, a bullet-pointed response. Bullet-pointed. Yeah, and then the rest of one. Middle-class characteristics, um, historical function, and what is the, 
the role in rebellion. I would, uh, coming from a kind of Marxian sense in terms of what the middle class is about, I would argue that uh, both in Argentina, especially in Argentina, but also in many other countries, it's more of an identity than an actual reality in terms of how people kind of see themselves. So survey after survey shows that um, the size of the middle class is, uh, in terms of one's own self-identity is grossly um, inflated. And so the historical um, purpose of the middle class, if you like, is to break the kind of solidarity that would exist by, subject, through, by subjugated classes because they, it pits middle class against working class, if you like. Um, and actually, even in Argentina, the, the idea of the middle class didn't exist before 1955. It was actually, a, it was created by the establishment as a response to Peronism and a response to kind of mid 40s, early 50s, um, a response to the kind of pro-poor government. Um, and actually there were, on TV, you had shows telling people what it is to be middle class, how you should act, what decorum you should have, what words you should use. The first studies about the size of the middle class by um, Germani in Argentina grossly exaggerated the size of the middle class by including occupations that there's no way that one could think that they belong to the middle class. And so the, it was clearly as a kind of blowback towards this kind of pro-working class, pro-worker concept, in, you know, the parents in, in the 40s and 50s. Um, the, in terms of um, political legacies, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult one to argue, answer, but I mean, there are political legacies in terms of 2001 and, and, uh, and stuff like that, in terms of the organising strategies are used, in terms, interesting, Argentina has a really interesting idiosyncrasy, which is that the sense of individual middle-class identity is very strong, even amongst large swathes of the population who aren't actually middle-class, but the mobilising identity as a middle-class has never really worked. It's always failed. And it's always failed because it has connotations to do with anti-people, right? Um, so it's never been used directly, and it never has since either. It wasn't Except used when in it is anti -people, when then, then it does work. In 2008, I mean, I'm thinking right. sometimes when it is anti-popular, mm. then it does work. Right. Okay. Yeah, but um, but it, it, it's rarely used in discourse um, yeah. in terms of a political mobiliser. Um, so it's the it's the kind of like it's the, always the um, the cause always to the people. You know, even in Argentina's national anthem, the Gran Pueblo Argentino. And so that's an interesting idiosyncrasy about Argentina, but um, I think it's, it's um, a continue that was the same in 2000. But what is actually interesting is, as a kind of legacy is the more subtle use of symbolism to say this is a middle class led protest, or if you are middle class, <coughs> join it. So the use of the saucepan is something that didn't begin in Argentina in 2001, it began in Chile, actually, with the kind of um, the uh, anti-Ashende movement. Um, I thought organized. you said in, in Brighton or something, there was a, in your book? <laughs> in my book, I referred to it um, originating in the UK in about 300 years ago right. in Norfolk. Norfolk. Too. As a means of, um, Norfolk. yeah, as a means of kind of publicly shaming someone who is supposedly of, um, uh, was mistreating his wife. And so as a kind of moral uh, repugnation, so the local villagers gathered around. And I think he'd, he'd, um, he'd cheated on his wife and that was really frowned upon um, 300 years ago. Um, but anyway, so yeah, it came from out of Chile in the anti-agenda movement, but has very much spread across um, you know, Europe. And it was taken up in Iceland, it was taken up in Spain, it was taken up in Greece. And so the symbolism endures. Uh, it, it's a kind of like, you know, it's okay to, this come, to come to this kind of protest 
you know, you're not kind of poor if you come to this protest, or if you're not, you know, you're not kind of tarred with that kind of brush, which in Argentina has become a really kind of the discourse, the anti-poor discourse has become really strong in the last few years. Um, so I'm not really, probably don't have much, much more time. I think um, in terms of populism, I, that's probably a whole new set of conversations. <laughs> Another book. Another book. I get really nervous about discussing populism because I don't really think it has much academic integrity unless you're looking at the work of Leclerc or something like that. It's kind of used more nowadays as a kind of stick to bash um, particularly the left with and you know, Corbyn, that kind of thing. Probably, possibly more appropriate in terms of how we look at Trump and stuff. But I just one, one final thing, I suppose, in terms of legacies. In Argentina, you can't take the middle class for granted, right? The middle class uh, was neglected for a long time in Argentina and it was neglected as a political actor and it's returned to this, the protests of 2001 were about the middle class coming back to the, the protest scene because historically in Argentina it's always been about the middle class are the ones who put governments in power or they, they're the ones that can remove governments. And so 2001 was, was them saying, hey, you know, we're sick of this, we're coming back and we're going to get rid of you. De La Rua and the radicals, you've, you know, you're the historical party of the middle class, you've let us down and we're coming for you. I think the Kirchners tried to do that. Um, the middle class did very well under the, the the large part of the middle class did very well under the Kirchners. Um, even if you, through policy, through economic growth alone, but even through policy, through Aura um, Dosne, which the middle class gained from tremendously, it gained from the strengthening of the peso, it gained from the um, microcredit programs. The mistake of, I think, the, the Kishna government was they didn't shout about it enough. They didn't, um, the rhetoric wasn't kind of, re it didn't reach out to them enough. So the Kishna governments were seen as governments that were pro-poor and a lot of the middle class or people who, again, I say self-defined as middle class, saw the, the kind of, you know, you used the, um, Marcy used earlier, we're having this conversation over tea, the idea that, um, you know, they couldn't, their, their kind of, um, uh, mama uh, kind of servants, whether they had kind of mobile phones and TV sets and computers and stuff, and so it was a kind of sense that we are falling behind relatively compared to them, and and that is kind of to a large part explains a lot of the fear that those in the middle class today in Argentina and I would say in other countries as well have of being replaced. You know that that fear that they will become or become part of um, the kind of lower class who are catching up with them. Hmm, I think we should probably wrap up <laughs> and come and have a glass of wine. Um, so um, I'd like to thank all of the speakers, Sam and Isabel, obviously, and you know, we're here to celebrate uh, Dan's uh, book coming into the world. I guess I just, I mean, I obviously, no question, no comment, <laughs> I'm very good, photo opportunity. Um, I just want to, to kind of just capture something that you ended with, which was, you know, the end of mobilisation, so kind of demobilisation. So I'm thinking actually the next book, I think, needs to be about the mechanisms of how anime actually takes hold, because that feels like it now really speaks to what's happening in the UK, what's happening in other places, where what we're finding is we can't mobilise anybody for any, you know, so I'm sorry that's a bit of a down <laughs> note to end on, but come and have a drink and thank you very much to our speakers. Thank you.